You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Well, motivated and empowered and all that. That was my biggest fear, really, not maximising my time on the bike. Hello and welcome to Faster, the Dr Hutch podcast, supported by Cycling Weekly magazine. I'm Michael Hutchinson, also known as Dr Hutch, and I'm a former professional cyclist and a national time trial champion. This podcast looks at the simple question of what makes a fast bike rider. Actually, it's not that simple a question. You talk about Formula One cars, and there's only so many Formula One cars in the world, and and what makes them so special is they can go, let's say, above 300k an hour. And I think that's the same as a bike rider. You know, what makes a special bike rider or the ability to win a World Tour race is at some point in the race, you have to be able to go to like 300k an hour. That thing that sort of set it apart. A few years ago, I wrote a whole book about it, also called Faster, and there was so much left to talk about that I wanted to keep the project going. I'm particularly interested in what separates the very best riders from the rest. What do the champions have that the rest of us don't? Is it natural talent? Dedication? Mindset? Is it just luck? So I'm talking to riders, coaches, sports scientists, psychologists, engineers, and anyone else who I think might have some of the answers. I never wanted to be, like, comfortable. I didn't want it to be like glamorous or anything. I always wanted to have it like an edge, you know, so it kept me hungry. My guest this time is Steve Cummings. There's not a lot that Steve can't do on a bike. He's been a track world champion and an Olympic medalist in the team pursuit. He was a key rider in the early Team Sky roster. He won the Tour of Britain, did the road race and time trial double at the British Championships and, as a late career flourish, won two stages of the Tour de France and a stage of the Vuelta a España. Steve retired in 2019, and it's the last phase of his career that I'm especially interested in. He transformed himself into one of the great breakaway specialists. As a breakaway rider, because of the so many variables, that you can be in the best shape of your life and not be anywhere near winning. One of the most memorable Tour de France stages for years was Steve's win in Mend in 2015 when he outsmarted the French superstar duo of Thibaut Pino and Romain Bardet. It was a magical moment for him and for his small MTN Quebec team. As a riding style, the solo attack is glorious to watch and very, very difficult to do. So I started off by asking Steve how to become his trademark. I think, I think for me, like you talk about, I think you said like three phases of my career, if you like. And um, ultimately, I just got to a point where I wasn't really, 
I felt like I needed to get the best out of myself. I really felt like I needed to be empowered. And and, and for me to do that, um, I wanted to chase victory because, like you say, that's what that's when I started cycling. I didn't have in my head, oh, I want to be a great domestique or anything like that. I started cycling. You, you, you dreamt, firstly, you dream of probably like everyone winning the Tour de France or winning a gold medal at the Olympics, something like that. And then as you, as you go through your career, you realize what might be possible and what might not be possible. And um, I just got to a point where I wasn't enjoying cycling because I wasn't really thinking about winning. I was almost like a robot to help other people. And um, like I said, I was, you go through the motions and that's not a nice place to be. So I started to think about winning and um, and that's how I got the best out of myself. So I think to answer the question, you have to get the best out of yourself to uh, and everyone has slightly different characteristics. Two psychological themes really struck out when I listened to that. The first one was autonomy and it's we can come back to it, but it's one of the key kind of pillars of motivation. And the second one was kind of internal insight. To help me understand how important Steve's change of approach was, I thought it might help to talk to Josie Perry. Josie is a sport and exercise psychologist. She's worked across a lot of sports, but she's particularly interested in what makes bike riders tick. She's also a triathlete, but I'm going to have to overlook that since she's the only sports psychologist I know. I asked her what she thought about Steve's switch in emphasis. Often when we talk about kind of the psychology behind elite athletes, we're looking for specific things that they have in common. Actually, there's not that many things they have in common, but what they do have is a real knowledge of what they have and how they can best use it. And when somebody is really, really drilled into themselves and they've got brilliant self-awareness of what their characteristics are and how they can use them, that's when they tend to do it best. Most people don't start riding a bike because they want to be part of the team. We see it as an amateur as a fairly individual sport. So you start out because you love that feeling of being out on the roads or that feeling of getting faster. You don't do it to be part of a team. And then it's quite an unusual sport in that, that we start out and we get good at it and we might get into a team because we're very good on our own. And then suddenly we've got an entirely different job to do once we get inside a team. And it changes overnight of what you're expected to do. And that feeling of winning that you might have or that feeling of... um, I've done really, really well. And that that love that it might give you, suddenly your job might be entirely different. It might only be to get halfway through the race and deliver somebody else to the front of the bunch. If you were to look at a power file, every every sort of world tour race I won, there was something that was like in that race, there was something like world-class about it. So it had, um, you have to have an ability to be able to go really really hard in a dif- in a difficult moment and i think sometimes averaging a high power all day it's quite straightforward a lot of people can do that but then if you were to use a car a racing car as an analogy and you talk about formula one cars and there's only so many formula one cars in the world and and what makes them so special is they can go let's say above 300k an hour and i think that's the same as a bike rider you know what makes a special bike rider or the ability to win a world tour race is at some point in the race you have to be able to go to like 300k an hour i think it's that that thing that sort of set it apart yeah no, that makes sense is it because it's partly the the ability to attack to then sustain that 
and to judge. I mean, that's quite a complicated piece of physiology to judge because that initial, you know, the first of those getting in, in a break to begin with, which can be harder on some days than others, because some days that's a serious physical fight. Other days it's rather less. So I, I think that's about fair to say. Oh, yeah. Now, now we're starting to talk about two things because what physically there's this fit this this is the physical elements and then there's also the the tactical elements and physically um you need to develop that engine so what what does that what does that look like you know uh you need to average high powers that's sure you need to be efficient on the bike um aerodynamic and stuff like that um what else do you need very very fit very very lean um I think the key word is probably efficiency, really. You have to be really efficient for your characteristics. So when you go uphill, it's not killing you to, to, to be there, if you know what I mean. Um, and for me, I, my probably strength was was that really, up, up to sort of 20, 30 minutes of a climb. But also I was very, I had a pretty high, like absolute power. Um, I wasn't the lightest, so I was, I tended to be at a disadvantage on, on climbs compared to some other riders. But if you look at a stage, certainly a medium mountain stage, like a Tour de France or something like that, it sort of balanced it out because of the the, the flat sections in between. I, I wasn't, get, I didn't ever get carried away with chasing numbers. I used numbers as um, as targets and stuff like that, and I knew like ballpark figures of of what world class was like for me and what I needed to do. And once I was in those sort of ballpark figures, so what kind of what what what's ballpark for that then? If you're you know what's what's the number that you see and think oh a bit less would be sensible here? You know where's your top limit when you're? Uh, I wouldn't say it was one number because like like I say it's it's a whole host of it's no good, it's no good being able to just go out and knock out um, I don't know let's say four hundred and seventy watts for twenty minutes that's useful but if you can only do it once you can only do it at the start of the race. It's not really that might get you into the break. Well, probably would, but um, <laughs> I think it might. <laughs> but uh, but um, that, yeah. It, but then it, it's all the other stuff. You know, you have to do that at the end of the race and stuff like that. So there's, there was a whole, there was like a, a number of factors. One would be like if I could average, let's say, I don't know, two sixty, two seventy watts in a training ride, but. The training, it wasn't just sat at 260, 270. It was like very, very intermittent. So there were lots of climbs. There was lots of times you were downhilling. And there was lots of moments where you sat at like 400. There was lots of moments where you sat at 470. So you have to be able to like see a race and understand that in certain sections of the race, you're going to have to go way, way above what is the average power of the the thing. But you, eventually you need to be able to do those those 270s for the four hours, the five hours, the, the 300s for the four hours, five hours. Within that, you need to be able to have that, what we were talking about before, like go to 300k an hour, which is like your 470 for 20 minutes and break it down to like three minutes. I, I can't remember what exactly what I used to do. We always have the, uh, you know, the notion of this kind of idea of critical power being that real sort of very key landmark in the physiology of the individual. Below that's sustainable to a point, and above that is not sustainable. And of course, the higher you go above that, the, the less um, duration you're going to spend. If you've ever ridden a bike or a trainer with a power meter, you'll know that the wattage numbers Steve's talking about are very, very big for a 73 kilogram rider. The question is, what do those sorts of numbers and the energy you need to sustain them mean in terms of delivering a race performance? I decided to talk to my old coach, Jamie Pringle, about it. 
Jamie's an exercise physiologist, former head of science for British Athletics, and he was the technical director at the Boardman Performance Centre. That idea of the watts per kilo that you can hold, in this case, if we do the maths, um, 6.2-ish that Steve is describing there, is entirely in keeping with what you would expect the characteristics of those performers. What I'm particularly you know, really taken by is just the way that Steve expresses that idea of delivering that in the latter part of a race when it really counts, either really counts tactically or it counts physically because you're able to deliver that and other people aren't. Um, and I think that's a really telling point because the characteristics that me as a physiologist, as a scientist would measure in the lab are generally in that fresh state. They're generally, somebody comes in fresh, rested, ready to go, ready to, to do a, a ramp test or whatever they're doing. And that won't tell you all the story. It'll tell you their capacity, their capabilities to achieve those numbers but it won't tell you all the story of what that's like to do that out on the road. It seems to me, looking at what you do from the outside, that one of the things you can do to make life easier for yourself is actually plan what you're doing. But but to what extent do you look at the, at the parkours beforehand and say, right, well, here's where this happens, here's where that happens, here we're, here's where if I'm not in the front group, I'll back out of it, here's... It, it, is there a plan that, that you could explain to somebody before the race even starts? Like first and foremost, you have to like talk about those ballpark figures of what I thought was world class for me. And when when I was hitting those kinds of numbers, then I was in a position to win. So I'd think about that. But I'd also when the routes would come out, I'd look at them. But ultimately, like you can't train specifically for every stage. I never used to do that, but there was there was times where I'd think, right, okay, this is I could use roads at home and I, I could sort of visualize myself in certain stages if you like so you, you'd visualize like the importance of a section of training or, or something like that using yeah and it, it sort of exaggerate how hard the first hour of, of a training might be and and just kind of follow a pattern roughly of, of the race but yeah in terms of picking out stages it, it was quite straightforward for me really and um as i evolved i sort of was able to put more x's in the book if you like because i, I felt like um there was always a possibility de depending on the circumstances but i think that one of the big differences is is with trying to win from a breakaway and specifically targeting that is you are you're you're reliant on like variables so many variables you never really take control of the race um it's not like you're racing for gc where you take control of the race so you've got to be very flexible and, and be very open and, and sometimes you can have a stage targeted and because the race doesn't go as hard as it might there's not much you can do you know you, you're one rider in a in a group of 200 i sometimes wonder if that's one of the reasons that a lot of good time trialers don't translate a time trialing ability which looks like it ought to translate quite well into solo attacking I wonder if part of that is just the mental difficulty of a day that you can't plan, because that's always a tendency that I think certainly I as a time trialist always had. And a lot of time trialists I know they like to kind of plan it from I'll get up, I'll have this for breakfast, I'll start my warm up at such and such. And if you want to stop a time trial that's winning a time trial, you give them the wrong thing for breakfast and it puts their whole day out. So the idea of you know, setting off from the race in the morning and it just doesn't go the way you'd planned. A lot of time trial riders, I think that causes a panic, which is maybe why 
what you because you're a very very strong time trialist but you're so much more than that and you can translate that ability into doing more interesting things yeah yeah i think it's just that really being flexible and also just like understanding that as a breakaway rider because of there's so many variables that you can be in the best shape of your life and not be anywhere near winning for for circumstances outside your control so it's just believing that eventually an opportunity will come and sometimes it yeah so you you've got to be flexible and you've got to i think that's that's why i use the the targets in training and stuff like that because if i was there in training then eventually it will come you know i i just believe if you do the right things it, it will happen but you also need a team that are prepared to buy into this because I've spent many a, a happy summer afternoon in July watching you skulking around at the back of um, at the back of the Tour de France peloton, waiting for the opportunity to scarper off up the road and win stuff. And, and there's not an awful lot of teams who, to put it bluntly, who are prepared to put up with that. You know, it's it seems a hell of a gamble to say, well, we're going to employ Steve. He's going to hang around at the back for days on end, and once in a while, he's going to win something. People associate that style of riding with me. But it was also at a time where I was, I think it's fair to say I was kind of fairly regularly winning big races. Um, and if you look at the makeup of the teams I was in, if you could come to me with saying, okay, this is the benefit of riding in the front, then you'd, you'd probably perhaps have a stronger argument. But you are right in saying that um, not many teams put up for that. But um if you're just going solely for stages, in my mind, it's like, okay, and identify which are your best opportunities and try and win those stages. But on the television also, you have to think that in 2015, particularly, we were there with a wildcard team. The only way we were going to win a stage is, is from a breakaway or, or from a reduced group, which would be an Edvold, Bose and Argens sort of sprint. And that, that was it. So often for us in that Tour de France, our race was like the first hour and once the pattern had, had been set there wasn't a great deal to do and for sure I have my weaknesses and my weaknesses was I didn't get involved very much with bunch sprints but having said that when Cav won four stages in 2016 I was always willing to um like more than willing really to um you know pull initially from the start to control the race and stuff like that. So I, I like doing stuff like that. It's just in 15, we didn't have, we, we didn't have a favorite of the race. So you wouldn't use that tactic. So consequently you're, you I was at the back. I was very black and white. I think I, um, I read there was a cycling news interview with you to mark your retirement. Um, one of the things that you said there was that when you were kind of growing up in cycling, you would watch, breakaway and watch an individual rider in the breakaway and see what what happened to him what did he do you know is that kind of i think chris hoy described this as being a student of the sport you know knowing about cycling knowing about what the dynamics of a breakaway are going to be knowing about how the bunch is going to react and that you can you can get a lot of experience just by by watching by paying attention um i know cav used to do the same thing with sprints is that kind of is that part of the package Absolutely. There was a period, like a long period in my career where I'd watch everything, like every bike race, like, um, but not just watch it. I'd be looking for like specific, specifics of pick out riders and just follow, follow riders and see how they move. 
I remember like the first time we started doing it, I think like Chris Newton used to do it for um, on the track for the points race. You know, I think for, for me, he was one of the best, like for best points race riders in the world for like a number of years, really. And he, he really paid attention to, to studying the points race. And I think uh, from that, you know, I just started paying more more attention to and also being in the race you learn a lot about team tactics what what teams how they like to race some teams like to take the race on some teams like to sit back and you start to pick out trends and you, you start to see as well um which riders are good on, on specific terrains which which riders are good in the downhill which riders are not so good and and yeah it's just an uh like a knowledge you, you kind of build up and um i always wanted to be accountable for my own performance i always wanted to be um use my own brain because ultimately the team can outline the strategy the ds can outline the tactic but ultimately like the intricacies in a race you, you can't sit behind a, a race as a ds and explain every moment because you can't see it you know so um and also things sometimes happen in, in seconds split seconds so like race intelligence or like a rider's ability to think and make the right decisions is so important i think and overlooked so what i tend to see with athletes across the board is that in a few sports where they are in control of their performance entirely so things like ice dance or gymnastics some athletes will say i do better when i completely switch off and i just do what i'm told and i even remember one i think a gymnast telling me I'm really thick and I think that's what's made me a world champion because I don't have to think about what I do. But I just do what I'm told and I don't process it. If I questioned it, I'd never get anything done. But in sports where we are having to make split-second decisions based on other people, when we're in a very uncontrollable environment like cycling, the athletes that seem to do well are the ones that ask tons of questions. And they're almost worried they're annoying their coaches or they're annoy annoying the DS. But they feel like the more they understand, the deeper their knowledge, the better they're able to perform. And that actually is the second element of these kind of pillars of motivation that we have, which is mastery. When you are so competent in your your sport, not just really, really fit, but when you've got that real deep intelligence of what works, how your bike works, how your body works, how the peloton works, what's likely to happen, and you've played through those scenarios in your head over and over again, then you'll have so much more confidence and motivation to push when you need to. But I also think it's the fact they're trying to learn from it shows that real passion for it. And sometimes an athlete might say to you like they're they're a bit embarrassed. They, they feel like they're too much, too geeky in their sport because they love watching other people's performances on YouTube and they'll sit there and go through them and you're like, that means you're just constantly learning. We don't want you to be doing that all the time. If that is all you are doing, then as soon as you get an injury, as soon as you get dropped from the team, as soon as you have to retire, you're going to have some serious well-being issues and we don't want that. So we want you to have different identities. If you genuinely love your sport, that much that you're going to sit there on a night off and re-analyze re old YouTube videos, then you're clearly in the right sport.
One of the things that I came to see you for um, an interview I did with you a couple of years back when you were in living in um, Tuscany. And one of the things that I remembered from that was sort of telling people afterwards was your um, your shed of pain, um, which is a little shed at the bottom of the garden with a turbo trainer in it. And it was a shed not much bigger than, so just about enough space for you, the bike and the turbo trainer. You just say, yeah, I had a bad day. I'd just sort of settle in there for a few hours. And I thought, oh, really, that's kind of commitment. I thought, I thought I knew how to turbo train, but I never was quite that. It was like something out of Rocky. <laughs> yeah, no, I always, I always had this thing in my. I was always like, I, I never wanted to be like comfortable. I always wanted to make to. Don't get me wrong. I wanted, I was organised in it, and I had everything there I needed to do. But I, I didn't want it to be like glamorous or anything. I always wanted to have it like an edge, you know, so it kept me hungry. Yeah, I didn't want it to be too nice, you know. It needed to be a bit rough for me. Have you been watching? They've been kind of Zwift racing through lockdown. There's some, there's some very, very nice kind of man caves that people have got to kind of frame jerseys in the background and kind of pot plants, and it looks lovely. And I look at that and think, oh yeah, Steve, Steve wouldn't have liked that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, rep- I don't know. For me, it just represents like where I'm from and and um, and stuff like that. Like you, I don't want to forget where I'm from. You know, it's good to keep your feet on the ground. You know, so when I was a kid, I'd, I'd go to school and then I'd come off and back, go straight on my bike in the evening, in the dark. And and it's the, it's important that you remember that when you're a pro after, you know, because it can all become too nice and too soft. Or, oh, I won't go out today. It's raining a bit. But it's like, hang on a minute. When I used, when I was a kid, and that's what got me there in the first place. So, yeah, I always wanted to keep it, like, remember, you know. I didn't want to get too far ahead of myself. There was kind of always to me something like an odd contradiction. If you're a kind of a pro cyclist, you live in Girona or Tuscany. You live somewhere nice and sunny and warm and glamorous, and you know it's a it's a high profile job. It's a job a lot of people want, but actually the grind of it is still the grind of it. You've still got to go and do the same stuff you used to do when you were a junior, when you were an under twenty three. If you're coming through the academy system, it's hard work, and you've got to keep doing that hard work, and that gets. To me, it gets harder and harder to reconcile with the, I don't exactly want to say the plush lifestyle, but, you know, pro bike riders, not badly paid. You can live well, but you've still got to get the grind done. Yeah, well, I think that's that's the balance, isn't it? You want to you make your job pleasant. You want to have fun. Um, but there's a balance there between, like, yeah, I don't know, um, between getting the work done in a nice way and then, not really getting the work done and being in in a in a you know just getting distracted by external things because you're in a nice place you know ultimately yeah and I, I can always say like when I was like talk about motivated and empowered and all that that was my biggest fear really not not um, maximizing my time on the bike and uh, yeah so I was not a person who would um, miss too many sessions if any and I'd always find a way. To getting done so if we were traveling or the weather was bad or was had three or four or five broken bones i'd still find the best solution to to get something done you know it's just part of being a, a pro bike rider that eventually you break something and you have to sort it out as quick as you can because if you don't no one really remembers how many bones you broke you just you've got to perform ultimately you're only you can only control like yourself and what you like the process every day and how you behave and how, how the level you get to and where you need to go. And if you're two kilos of weight, you know, you're two kilos of weight, but um, sometimes, like you say, there's other factors that that are limiting on performance, like 
equipment sometimes like the teams can change equipment and that can affect your performance um and from the outside you're like oh what's happened to him but from the inside you know like you're the same athlete but something's not quite right and uh yeah that's infuriating but again it you just have to remove yourself and say well i can't control the equipment i just got to do my do my best and and be yeah, just be proud of, of doing a good performance, even though it is frustrating that uh, you may be limited by other things. You talk about equipment. I mean, that's actually in some way to go back to where to where we started talking about kind of the art of the, the, the swashbuckling solo breakaway hero. Equipment gets more and more important with that because the aerodynamics is, is really key to that. And that's, you know, increasingly the last few years you see riders starting in skin suits aero helmets you know deep rim wheels you can nearly kind of look at the bunch and think well there's someone who's thinking about going up the road today because they turn up riding something that's halfway to a tt bike and a full skin suit and aero helmet <laughs> dossard beautifully pinned on and all oh, right okay see what you're planning <laughs> oh exactly exactly but then now it's, it's it's going it's going more and more like people are just like that every day now you know that the no pins suit and and uh, Adam Hansen was a good one, you know. He always had like uh, I think he had a camelback full of gel because he never used to carry anything in his pockets. He just <laughs> <laughs> no, that was um, when and um, Alex Dyson won his stage at the uh, the Giro this year. I kind of watching that thing. Oh, yeah, they up the skin suit, the rest of it, the aero helmet, and Alex said, "No, I dress like that every day. I hadn't really got any plans. That's just that's just standard kit now." Yeah, no, um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but de- definitely, you're right though. There's there's uh, there's an air if you go rewind the clock like we're five years ago now i think there was uh there was a moment there where there was like a bit of a gap in terms of position on the bike in terms of equipment you used for the road race and um i like to think that i exploited that or maximized everything that was in my control really like certainly pushed our sponsors and pushed myself to find the the, the most efficient uh equipment and the most efficient position and um i think it's that gap's narrowed like people are you know some of the guys on some web and they, they look pretty amazing and um yeah everyone's it's it's become there's always areas you can find but uh did you ever did you ever, did you ever wind tunnel test your uh your road bike yeah the process i did was i used to do a lot of um uh like medium work so you know you talk about like your threshold your medium so my medium was just that sweet spot area just below my threshold. I used to do a lot of that on the flat, like 20-minute blocks, 30-minute blocks, 15-minute blocks. And uh, I started to use, like, in Italy, you know, the, the wind isn't such a factor as it is in the UK. So I used to use, like, the same sections of road. I'd always almost, like, measure um, the distance, really, or the speed. And um, I would – I certainly, like, naturally had found – what was felt like the fastest position for me and then we took that position and tested it in the tunnel and um we couldn't really find anything any gains to be honest it was like yeah i mean you can always take it too extreme but there's a balance between aerodynamic and like what's usable in the peloton because you have to go downhill you have to fight for position at times um, and you have to be comfortable for yeah three weeks. So I think I paid a lot of attention to it, and yeah, I found what was really fast for me. It's surprising actually how I think how much you can learn from 
field testing in bulk, if you like, you know, someone who rides their bike a lot in the same places, I think you do develop an instinct for what works and what doesn't. Um, I even know one or two track coaches who have an incredible grasp of aerodynamics just from standing beside the track, watching their, watching their riders all day, every day, week after week, year after year, they start to develop quite a feel for it. And then they kind of, they bring in an aerodynamics consultant mm-hmm. and they, the aerodynamics consultant spends kind of three or four days doing a lot of testing and says, do you know what, actually, you know, um, the, these guys are already as good as they're going to get, um, which can clearly be a bit depressing if you're the aerodynamics consultant, which I have been once or twice. <laughs> But um, about, it's it's surprising just how much you can learn. Yeah, you, I think you know, as a pro, you're on the bike, you're on it every day, and and my training was quite, it was always like quantified, and I did a lot of the the work. Like my bread and butter was that sweet spot, really, and and I did a lot of those on the flat. So it was it was an opportunity to to like refine and every day try try to find something new or think about something else, and uh, you can come. I think relatively naturally to a position and then you just use the the specialists the wind tunnel to sort of confirm what what the feel is like on the road and, and just make sure you haven't missed anything but it's really and it's really useful even if the aerodynamics guy says and the wind tunnel says there's not much we can do here that's that's also good to know yeah oh you know yeah. which is always what you're after i think like more than myself and my own position i used to be very aware then of um like other riders positions and um and that was really good that was really useful because you'd think hang on a minute this guy is like super strong but he's not aero so um i used to that used to give me i think a psychological advantage as well it's that kind of thing you know and, and we measured it i measured it in a wind tunnel like um different positions on the handlebar and and what um what that would look like at 45k an hour in terms of how much more watch you'd have to spend or how, how less watch you'd have to spend in a super aero took we measured it and then from that you i used to be able to think i used to look at my thing i said right, we look this has been a hard day i've averaged 280 so far three hours if i've done 280 then this guy's done 300 more or less <laughs> at, at least at least so it, it just yeah it gives you a, a bigger picture and then it's like gives you also more confidence that you know like okay i'm not feeling so good but he's feeling worse and then when we come to this climb i've just got to got to try and get normally i shouldn't be able to but maybe today i can because he's had to spend more energy so there are certain riders who have got a significant advantage on the start line because their kit is better um i think steve alludes to it you know this idea that you can spend um you know a few hours riding alongside somebody thinking actually i'm saving energy not that i'm going faster because that's not really what we're talking about at that stage in the race but I'm riding alongside you. We're both looking down at our power meters and I'm doing less to achieve the same speed. And that might be because I'm in a better position on my bike. It might be the bike is better in itself. And those are the key things that make the difference. Those are the things that make the difference at the end of the race. And there is some really good scientific research that's been very just descriptive of what pro cyclists do. And it's exactly that. Once you've expended a certain amount of energy, about about in the region of about 2,000 kilojoules, so a couple of hours of good hard riding, that's when the differences come to him. Now, if you can save 10, 20, sometimes, sometimes more, sometimes 30, 40 watts of power output to achieve the same speed, then you're saving that energy. And you're not just saving it from a, you know, an energy turnover point of view, but from all the consequences of fatigue and everything else and changes in gross efficiency that you might see because you've been expending that energy. It's a different world now than it was five years ago, and it was certainly a different world from what it was 20 years ago. 
Um, and of course, you'll see that manifest in you know riders taking specific attention to these things, even in a what would effectively be a regular, you know, non-eventful road day in a Grand Tour. They're still wearing a aerodynamic suit. I remember the story about Bradley Wiggins uh, going to the wind tunnel on his road bike. Uh, obviously, he did a lot of work on the TT bike, but on his road bike. And looking at the differences between where he was um, gripping on the handlebars, gripping on the hoods, gripping on the tops, gripping on the drops, and that interacted with his body position and so on. And he found that the difference between gripping on the hoods and gripping on the drops was quite significant. I don't know what the number was, but it was, it was enough that over the course of a three-week tour with 20, 21 stages of racing, uh, whatever it is, that the energy expenditure, that if he'd stood, uh, stayed higher in the hoods compared to being slightly lower and more aerodynamic in the drops, it was the equivalent of a day of riding. And when you look at that, you think you're getting to the end of that, you know, that race, effectively done a day less than some of the other people. And it wasn't just, obviously he was a team leader and he was protected. It, so it wasn't just about him being out in the wind by himself, but it was in the bunch. It was actually riding in that position in the bunch to save as much energy as possible. I always like felt like if I you look at the the makeup of a breakaway and there's certain things it's just like well with 4k to go if I can just get on my own there's no one here who can catch me it's just not possible based on aerodynamics and and, and raw power yeah it's it's also you know like Hutch you know when you see a time trial you see like I don't know let's say 42k and you you look at the profile and there's a series of climbs, there's a technical section, and then you try and figure out like where's the best to spend your power, and and that was always the same for a breakaway. It's the same principles, I think. It's it's not just riding at 400 watts. It's riding sometimes at 500, sometimes at 600, sometimes with no watts down the hill. Oh yeah, I mean we used to do we used to do a lot of modelling with stuff like that. Um, you know we we used to kind of run my coach and I used to run kind of quite quite sophisticated spreadsheets to work out kind of this many watts in this section of one race that I think Jamie, uh, Jamie Pringle used to coach me. He divided kind of 40 kilometers up into something like 150 different sections. and was suggesting I might like to memorize the wattage for 150. And I said like, I can't, and then he suggested he, maybe he could get a spray can and go out and, and paint on the road, the wattages for, for this. And I said, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> Um, and I did my best to learn that, and and then you turned up and beat me by like two minutes. And I'm guessing you hadn't learned 150 different sections of the course of the wattages to ride them at. I think like the idea, the idea there is fantastic. It's just that you you need something much simpler in reality to 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 apply. So it's I used to try and split things up, yeah, just sections really, just just sections, and also. I was flexible on the day because sometimes the conditions changed. So. Um, but I wasn't the best at doing all that stuff. I really enjoyed chatting to Steve. He's a very thoughtful rider. He's got a real understanding of the sport and how to make it work for him. More than anything else, I came away from the conversation impressed with the extent to which he's in control of what he's doing. He's not relying on anyone else to do the work or do the thinking for him. And as always with top level racing, the details really matter. Steve understands everything from the physiological demands of what he's doing to the aerodynamics and the equipment. And not just how those things are affecting his riding, he's aware of what's happening with those around him as well and how he can take advantage of that. I think it's probably one of the reasons that most of his best road results came when he was riding for a smaller team. He just had more control and he knew how to use it. That's how he came to win some very big races. 
Not long after we spoke, Steve announced he was joining the Ineos Grenadiers team in a development director's portifro. And it's great to hear he's staying in the sport. He's got an awful lot to pass on. Thanks to my guests Steve Cummings and to Jamie Pringle and Josie Perry. Thanks to you for listening. I hope you took as much away from the chat with Steve as I did. And of course, my thanks to Cycling Weekly magazine for supporting the show. If you liked this episode, please tell your friends about it. It really helps people to find us. It'd be great if you could like and subscribe to Faster and rate it as well. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Hutch if you want to get in touch. And if you want to read the book that inspired the podcast, it's also called Faster. And it's available from places that sell books, both online and in real life. Faster is produced, mixed and edited by Tom Wally and the team at Strip Media. You just heard a Stripped Media production. 